0: This is the word of the Lord. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Amen. Good morning, church family. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really happy to follow the comedy duo of Hannah Colvin and Shane Patrick. That was fun. And uh, yeah, we love our children here a lot. They're an important part of our ministry and the mission field that God's given to us. And uh, if you're new, we are finishing up today our summer in the Proverbs series. As a church family, we love to go through books of the Bible. We really, our favorite thing we love to do is take a whole book of the Bible and just go line by line through the whole thing. Uh, With Proverbs, we did it a little bit differently because it's a more topically arranged book of the Bible. And so we just took six weeks and looked at different themes and different ideas. And today we're finishing up with what is the last chapter in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. And uh, I'll say this just by way of kind of pre-introduction. Proverbs 31 is not a passage that is particularly well known by those outside of the Christian community of faith, but within the walls of the community of faith, within the church, Uh, It is often quite well known. And uh, for many of you women who are here today, uh, you may have felt your heart rate go up just a little bit at the mention of this idealized portrait of the Proverbs 31 women. Is is anybody with me on that? Let me just share with you and empathize. My heart rate is going up at the thought of preaching on this passage uh, because there's so many misunderstandings. There's so many potential hurts, so many potential landmines. And I just want to go before the Lord and just ask for him to use me to teach truth and for all of us to uh, walk away with a better picture of Jesus, our Savior. today. So will you pray with me as we start our time together? God, we come before you, uh, even as some of the songs we were singing and the, the, the prayers we prayed, God, we come before you full of weakness. Uh, God, not a single person, including myself here today, not a single one of us has all of our stuff together. God we're we are weak, we are sinful, we are confused, we are busy and frazzled at times, Lord God. We come before you with all of our mess and all of our weakness and we seek to take you up on your offer of giving us peace and rest for our souls, of giving us grace upon grace, of giving us love that is beyond what we could have ever asked or imagined. And so we just bring our hearts before you right now. Lord God, would you help me to do a good job of explaining this passage and teaching this passage in a way that gives honor and glory to you and and lifts burdens and doesn't place burdens on anyone's shoulders today? And God, would you give each and every single one of us, uh, men and women, both today, a heart to learn and to grow and to be drawn closer to Jesus. In whose good name we pray. And everyone said amen. Proverbs 31. As I mentioned, it's a, it's a fairly, uh, it can be a, a, a kind of a divisive passage. It's a beautiful passage. It's a poetic passage. Scholars, Bible nerds, really love this passage. They really love this passage. And I'm, I'm, I know you're probably thinking, oh, is that because it's an acrostic poem with a chiastic structure? And yes, you're right. That's why, that's why they like it. Uh, what that means is it's an acrostic. It's a poem where every line of the poem starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's this really intentionally crafted poem. When I think of acrostics, you know, poems that start with the next letter of the alphabet, I think of Dr. Seuss. Uh, that's the level of poetry I'm usually reading. Uh, but it's a chiasm or a chiastic structure, which means it's it's symmetrical. So it starts with a certain idea, and if you go to the very end, it ends with that same idea. And if you go to the next verse, it's that idea. And you go to the second to last and so on and so forth until you find yourself in the middle of this symmetrical pattern. So it's really intentionally crafted. So scholars love it. Some women really love this passage because it, it glorifies women. It, it champions women. It's this amazing picture of, of godliness and wisdom lived out in a woman. Other women, some of whom I talked to this morning, hate this passage. Because it's like, it's, it's like, who is this woman? And how is she doing all these amazing things? And who can actually live like this? This is insanity and there's a resentment almost. Men. Don't think I'm going to let you off the hook. Some men hate this passage too. I remember years ago listening to a sermon from a pastor named Sam Storms, where actually a group of us are going to go to a conference that he's hosting next month. I've gone to know him a little bit, but when he preached on this passage, maybe seven, eight years ago, he said, there are a good many men who are terrified of Proverbs 31. They're terrified of this passage. They're threatened by what it says. They fear that if their wives hear the sort of sermon I'm about to preach, it will put their authority in jeopardy and will lead to chaos in the home. Nothing could be farther from the truth. So let me just say this right up front. Only weak men are afraid of strong women. Deal with it. Woo. I mean, yeah, right? Good job, Dr. Sam Storms. He said it, not me, if you're mad. Just, just kidding. This whole sermon feels like, I mean, you're going to see, I mean, this whole thing feels like I'm walking on a tightrope over a landmine field with piranha trenches on either side. So just pray for, pray for the boy, Okay. I wanna keep three things in mind before we dive into this passage. There's three things we really need to think about that'll help us as we approach these verses. Number one is we need to remember the nature of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is this general set of truths We can't stretch Proverbs beyond what it was intended to convey. Proverbs is a very idealistic sort of book. It it says, you know, hey, if you walk in the way of wisdom, good things will happen. If you walk in the way of foolishness, bad things will happen. And, And while we know that life is more complicated than that, and we even know that the Bible acknowledges that life is more complicated than that, we also remember that in general what the Proverbs teach are true that there's a good way to live your life. There's a way that's honoring to the Lord. And in general, if you avoid foolishness, you will avoid harm that you could bring on yourself. So we need to remember the nature of Proverbs as we read this very idealized passage. Number two, we need to recognize the nature of this woman that is being spoken of. She is an ideal portrait. Let me just say clearly, there is no woman who lives up to the Proverbs 31 woman. In the book of Proverbs, you see these um, kind of two different women exemplified. There's, there's lady wisdom and there's lady folly. If you go back to chapter 7, 8, and 9, you can see wisdom is talked about as a woman and folly is talked about as a woman. The foolish woman is exemplified or is kind of personified as the seductive woman. This is what foolishness looks like, giving place to a sensual and seductive uh, snare. And then, conversely, over here, this is what wisdom looks like. It looks like this virtuous woman from Proverbs 31. So you need to keep in mind that this is a composite sketch of, of ideally what wisdom would look like in every area of life, or most every area of life. And number three, I want you to keep in mind who is speaking And who is hearing in this passage? If you go back to verse one of chapter 31, we're gonna pick up in verse 10, but all of chapter 31, it says, the words of King Lemuel, and scholars have no idea who King Lemuel is. I asked them, they don't know. King Lemuel is not someone who's found in the record of the kings of Israel. The best guess that anyone has is that he's a king, maybe from the Mesopotamian region. They don't really know. But it says, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So, and then it goes into some advice, and then it goes into this Proverbs 31 woman. So this chapter is a man telling us, like those great theologians, Leonard Skinner, what his mama said, For some of you ladies, that might change the tone of how you hear this passage. This is not spoken to a woman. It's spoken by a woman, to her son in her motherly wisdom and her motherly instruction saying, this is the kind of woman you want to look for. You almost picture like a mom taking her, you know, teenage son or young adult son. Hey, let's go get coffee and let me tell you how to find a good one. Let me tell you how to look for the right kind of woman who's going to make your life a blessing and a joy, not the kind of woman who's going to drag you down, someone who's going to exemplify wisdom. It's not spoken to a woman, it's spoken by a woman. So with that in mind, those three things in mind, I want to read through the entirety of this passage, just one straight shot through. You can follow along on the screen, you can can read in your Bibles, maybe even just want to close your eyes and just listen and, and imagine a mother saying these things to her son. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she's to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And all God's people said, amen. So who is this woman? Like I said, she's a a composite sketch, but more specifically in verse 10, it says an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Couple things. Number one, some translations of the Bible into English will use the word wife. Other translations will use the word woman. In the Hebrew, it's the same word it's isha. Man is ish and woman is isha. But also, husband can be ish and wife can be isha. So you need to remember that in the ancient Near Eastern world, marriage is going to be assumed. So you say, you know, we might say something like, oh, that's my woman right there. Like, that's my wife. It's, it's kind of like that, how those words can be used more or less interchangeably. I want to remind you, for those of you who are unmarried or who, who um, you know, struggle with that, when the, when the Bible presents a picture like this, you need to remember that their culture is going to assume marriage. I also would invite you, I'm not going to re-preach the sermon right now, but a few weeks ago, we talked about the subject of singleness and that the Bible, uh, the New Testament in particular, but even throughout the Old Testament, really elevates and dignifies those who are not married, that you are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Amen? That ultimately all marriages point to our relationship with Christ Jesus. I'm just saying that culturally, marriage is going to be assumed because for the vast overwhelming majority of people in this part of the world, in this time of the world, you're going to get married. So it's an excellent wife, specifically. You look to the context. It talks about children. It talks about a husband. So yeah, we can say it's about a wife, but more generally about an excellent woman. Second, this word ex excellent depending on your translation is a really fascinating word it's the hebrew word hayil and elsewhere in the bible people speak to men who are soldiers as being men of hayil and usually it's translated like you mighty man of valor it's like a champion it's like a it's like a top shelf sort of a person so here this word excellent if you look throughout the Old Testament, sometimes it's translated as strong or rich or someone with great ability. Some translations say a, a woman of noble character. The point being, she's awesome. And she's rare. Who can find? She's far more precious than jewels or pearls or rubies or even coral, depending on what translation you might be reading from. This is, this is very clearly an ideal portrait. This is an amazing woman, of, of a woman of valor, hard to find. And she is marked by six things. I already mentioned that this poem is kind of arranged in this symmetrical, chiastic structure. So I'm going to jump around a little bit to highlight to you the six themes that this virtuous woman is marked by. So you can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles, take some notes here. The first thing that she is marked by is hard work. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax. I will tell you right now, I have never sought wool or flax, not even one time in my life. Haven't done it. She works with willing hands. She's not begrudging. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. You think it's a long drive to Costco, but she's got merchant ships from afar. She rises while it's still night, while it's still dark out, and provides food for her household and, get this, portions for her maidens. You're like, I don't have maidens. How do I get maidens? I would feed them if I had maidens, if they would help me around the house. Amen, yeah. She considers a field and buys it, so she works in real estate, but with the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she's also like a gardener. If you skip down to verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She knows how to run Excel. Excel. She can run a profit and loss balance sheet, right? Her lamp does not go out at night. Oh, so she gets up early but she also stays up all night. Okay, so she's working round the clock. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. I don't know what either of those things are, but it's something to do with making yarn. I'm like, you can buy yarn, but she's making yarn. Okay. Verse 22, she makes she makes bed coverings for herself. Like like I know people that make clothing, but she's like making the sheets for her bed. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. And if you skip down to verse 24, she makes linen garments and she sells them. And she delivers sashes to the merchant. Like, here you go, buddy. Interestingly, this passage, this this particular theme of hard work gets the most amount of airtime in the section. How many of you know from the book of Proverbs that, that Proverbs doesn't really have anything good to say about lazy people? Laziness is never uh, you know, extolled as a virtue. And so here, one of the markers of what wisdom looks like, wisdom often looks like putting in a lot of good hard work. So that's, in the general sense, what's going on here. Wisdom looks a lot like working hard. But I also want you to notice something culturally. See, our culture is weird. Our culture... Um, specifically when it comes to the idea of work women stop me if you've heard this one particularly married women with children oh well do you do you work or do you just you just stay at home with your kids and man you know what you know the same like when you're on thin ice you might as well dance we're going all the way out to the middle of the lake here today okay follow me Here's the idea. Our culture has, has kind of separated work and home in a way that's really foreign to most of the rest of the world. We say things like going to work or working outside of the home. Notice that this woman is, she's working in her family and she's working outside of the family. She's, she's doing things like, you know, making clothing and making food for her family, but she's also got a side hustle and she's buying and selling fields, Right? She's meeting with merchants over here, selling sashes. So she's got like an Etsy shop or something. I don't know. And then she's over here and like cooking meals for her family. See, we have kind of really separated the two. And because of that, we can fall into a couple of different ditches. And I want to warn you about these couple of ditches. Ditch number one looks something like we take American cultural 1940s, 1950s, leave it to beaver Americana. And we say, woman, that's your place. You stay in the home. You cook, you clean, you know, some of those unfortunate stereotypes. And unfortunately, when they work their way into the church, we are allowing culture to dictate what a woman can and can't do instead of the word of God, okay? So that is one ditch that we can fall into. Women, if your desire is to work or run a business, praise God, you're just being Proverbs 31-ish. But the other ditch that we can fall into is, and particularly in America, where certain aspects of American culture have tried to say things like, well, we need to elevate women, we need to free women from the shackles and the bonds of patriarchy, and so therefore, if you aren't working outside of the home, you're some sort of a lesser woman, or if you're not making the same amount of money as your husband, or heck, who even needs a husband, and and if you decide you want to have kids, well, that's just fine, don't really spend time with them, that's not Proverbs 31-ish either, to neglect the family for the sake of career. So there are ditches on both sides of the road. Women, you have been uniquely designed, even biologically designed by God, for the specific role of motherhood. And so if God is gracious enough to give you a husband, to give you children, don't neglect that for the sake of work, but also don't fall into the trap of thinking that the only place that a woman's value is is in wife and and mother and homeward bound sort of stuff. Can Can you hear me on that? We're trying, to do, we're trying to do some work where the Bible holds things in tension that we often try to just flatten out. We've got to hold these things in tension. Number two, this woman of wisdom is marked by her wisdom, specifically. It's called out. And this is wisdom in both deed and word. Verse 20 says, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Verse 26 says she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. One of the things you'll notice as you read the book of Proverbs that wisdom is not just words. Wisdom is, what what does Jesus say? Wisdom is proven by its deeds. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 11. So you can talk a lot of wisdom, but real wisdom is shown through actions, not just through speech. And actually in the book of Proverbs, giving to the poor, caring for the needs of those uh, who are less fortunate is one of the absolutely distinguishing markers of wisdom. So here, this woman is wise in word and deed. And so we, we see the, the deeds, that might be a little bit easier, but in, in our church, uh, there's something I want to specifically address and that is the teaching of words. Women, hear me on this. We are unashamedly Uh, an elder-led church. And the best that I and we as an elder team can can see, uh, convinced that the New Testament teaches that the elders in the church are to be men. It's in 1 Timothy 3, it's in Titus chapter one. One of the qualifications to be an elder or to be an overseer is that you must be able to teach others how to follow the Lord, how to understand the word of God. What can happen, the correction that I want to address is this. In the community of faith, Are the elders of the church the only people who should teach other people the word of God? Thank you. Good answer. Friends, men who are not called to the office of eldership, you need to learn the word of God and be able to teach it to other people. Women, you need to learn the word of God and be able to teach it to other people. I don't know that I or any of the other elders have ever stood up here and said, you know, it's only the elders are supposed to teach, but it's one of those things in a church like ours that could be implicitly picked up. And let me just state on the record, and I'm pretty sure the guys are recording this and it's going to go on the internet. We all need to learn how to use our words to speak the truths of the word of God, be prepared in season and out of season to teach one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, men and women. Amen? Amen? She is marked By opening her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Number three, this woman is marked by fearlessness. Verse 21. She is not afraid of snow. (laughs) Snow. I'm I'm trying to draw strength from this verse today, because like I'm not afraid of the fifty-two-degree waters of the Puget Sound for the baptisms this afternoon. I'm gonna learn from this woman, not afraid of snow for her household for all her household are clothed in scarlet. They've got on good, thick, sturdy clothes. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Hardships, troubles, bah, I scoff in your general direction. I, uh, <laughs> I made it a point this week to like, talk to some various women in my life and just kind of asking for perspectives on this, particularly for women who'd grown up in the church. And one of them is Hannah, who works on staff with us. And she was here doing the welcome a little bit ago. And so I was asking her about this passage and talking to her about it and explaining some things and getting her perspective. And I, I went back in my office and I shut the door and I'm working on, on my, uh, my sermon. And I get this text from Hannah, and I'll put it up on the screen because it's worth sharing from Hannah. She said, you know what I just realized? Uh, I just realized that no fear pl- snow plus clothes in scarlet equals a good wife loves Christmas. Put that in your sermon or I quit. <laughs> so there you go. You're welcome, Hannah. All right, back to the verse. Here's the thing. We all know that there is a type of fearlessness, which is cavalier or is foolish and doesn't take into account the fact that there are dangers in this world. And the book of Proverbs has a lot of things to say about, hey, be wise, be prudent, don't be foolish, don't be hasty. But there's a type of fear that looks a lot like not having faith in God. There's a type of fear that looks like I'm going to get a security system for my alarm system, for my security system, so that everything in my life can be managed and contained, and I can eliminate all threat of harm and all risk. Friends, that's just not the nature of reality. And you can put a fence up, and you can have a security system, and you can get your oil changed every 20,000 miles, or however often you're supposed to. It's probably way less than that. 3,000 miles? Yes. I just said too much. I... Right? You can do everything you're supposed to do and things in your life may still fall apart. There may be hardships, but the idea here is when there's trust in the Lord, you don't sit around worrying and fearing about what's to come. You can look at troubles in the future and say, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. I'm going to trust in the name of my Lord. This woman is also marked by strength. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. This sister here is doing some bicep curls, okay? Don't you laugh too loud at that, Sam. <laughs> strength, yeah, she does CrossFit. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Oh, um, yeah, and strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. So, so multiple times strength are mentioned here. And and this is another one of those ones culturally that we need to untangle a few knots. Okay. Biologically, it is a biological and scientific fact that in general, men are stronger than women. Since Ken brought up CrossFit, uh, at the recent CrossFit Games a few weeks ago, you know, the winning man lifted about 150 pounds heavier than the winning female. Now, so we, therefore, we can kind of say, well, strength belongs to men. No, not so, not so quick. Because it says here that this woman is strong. Do a thought experiment with me. Let's, let's try a different virtue, okay? Let's take something like nurturing. Sociologists, psychologists, all the studies that are always done will say that by and large, women are more nurturing than men. That's just a... It's a proven scientific fact as much as there can be such a thing. Does that mean that men are not to be nurturing? Friends, that's foolishness. Men and women are different. Men and women are not that different. See, see we reject what the culture says, a kind of flattening out of any distinction between male and female. Men and women are the exact same. No, that's just not true. It's not true biblically. It's not true scientifically. It's not true sociologically. Men and women are not the exact same. But then what happens sometimes is we swing the pendulum too far the other way, and we say things like men and women are polar opposites, or men are from Mars and women are from Venus, and the reality is we're both from Earth. Okay? I've watched some science documentaries and I've determined that we both live on planet earth. There are distinctions between men and women, but there's overlap between men and women. And rather than it being like a light switch where like strength is over here for men and, and nurturing is over here for women, it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe a, it's more turned up. The dial is turned up more for men in the strength category and, and, the, and the, the nurturing dial is turned up a little bit more for women. But man, I was thinking about last year traveling to Uganda and watching some of these women carry jugs of water for five miles from a, a water source to carry them back to their home to take care of their children. Man, that's strong women. Some strong women motivated by love for their family and, and knowing that if they don't do this hard work, someone is going to suffer or, or someone may even die. Women, Don't believe the cultural lie that strength doesn't belong to women. Be strong. And men, if that scares you, you need to reckon with what the word of God says. Number five, she is marked by dignified beauty. And if that one was potentially contentious, man, Lord help me here. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. This isn't just clothing that's like kind of your run-of-the-mill, you know, brown fabric. Fine linen that is purple. Think about that time of the world. You don't just go to the store. You don't just go to Target and get any sort of fabric and and color, whatever you're looking for. Like, that takes work. That takes effort. That takes intentionality. You're going to have purple clothes. She makes linen garments. Ooh, that's also quite nice and sells them. She delivers sashes. Think about the nature of a sash. What, does, what, what good, what functional, pragmatic purpose does a sash have? Other than telling you who won the pageant. <sighs> a sash, it's a decoration. It's an adornment. And then here's, here's what really blew my mind this week when I was studying. Strength and dignity are her clothing. The word for dignity is the Hebrew word Hadar. And I did a word search throughout the entire Old Testament for every time that word hadar is used and most of the time most of the time that word is translated either adornment or majesty it speaks of God in his splendor he uses words like splendor and splendid it's it's this idea of like beauty and and like catches your eye and something that would like attract you and you would you would stand in like amazement It's not just dignity. You think of dignity, you think of like your quiet aunt who like doesn't ever spill anything at the dinner table, right? Like dignity. Like no, this is, it's more than just that. Here's, here's why I say this is so challenging because women, we live in a society and a culture that is insane when it comes to standards of beauty and the pressure that is on you. And so even as I believe that the Bible here is praising the idea of beauty, I want to make sure that I don't add to what is already an impossible burden to live up on. See, we live in a world where you can go on Pinterest and you can look at a perfectly curated set of photos for every single piece of clothing, for your shoes, for your hair, for your makeup. You can go on Instagram and you can follow women who have their boyfriends taking pictures for them for 150,000 pictures until they get just the exact right one where the lighting is right and everything looks good. You can pick up a magazine where where it's literally fake because of Photoshop and Lightroom and all the technology we have. There is a standard of beauty that is put upon women in our culture that is ungodly, that is destructive, and that is, it's false. But rather than swing the car into the other ditch, let's hold these tensions, biblical tensions, let's hold them together. Because you see, the Bible speaks of God as being Beautiful. God is, God is interested in things of beauty. Anybody here who's an artist or a musician or a painter or maybe like some people, we have, a, we have a woman in our church who actually makes clothing and it's like really cool and really good and like maybe you're interested in things of beauty but you've heard these messages maybe from the church at times where it's like well beauty and, and fashion all that stuff that's a worldly thing and, and over here we're just going to be very plain and, and you can go to verses like in 1 in Peter that talk about don't let your adornment be external and all that sort of stuff. You could even Go to the end of Proverbs 31 where it says that beauty is vain or beauty is fleeting, and that's all true because the biblical warning is do not put your identity in your appearance. Do not put your hope and your identity and how well you're doing in how you look, but at the end of the day, in its right and proper position, this woman is making sashes and she's dressing in purple. And there is a lot of things that the Bible talks about as being beautiful, including at times women. The Bible's not unrealistic. It says that Abraham was afraid that the Pharaoh was going to steal his wife from him because she was so beautiful. Have you ever read the Song of Songs? And Solomon goes on and 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 on about how beautiful his wife is and her long neck and all sorts of things that we don't culturally necessarily relate to. Like Beauty is not an ungodly thing. What our culture has done with beauty and the pressure that comes from that is an ungodly thing, but the Lord himself is beautiful. The scripture would warn us against having our identity being in beauty, physical beauty or, or using beauty to get attention from people. But I think the Bible would also admonish us, admonish us to not disregard beauty or if I could even use the words like self-care. Sometimes by putting on some nice clothes, you can show, you know what? I am made in the image and likeness of God and I have dignity and value and worth. You could dress in a way that worships God. Lastly, this woman is marked by blessed relationships. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Sounds like all of our marriages, right? Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children, her children, they get up in the morning And they call her blessed. Dear mother, (laughs) my blessed mother. (laughs) Some of you are like, I gotta call my mom this afternoon. (laughs) Her husband also, he uses his words to affirm her and to bless her. Again, remember what I said about singleness and and those who who aren't married, not second class citizen, but but again, in this context, the, the closest relationships she have, she has with people, they're blessed. The people who are closest to her feel loved by her and they express love back to her. Verse 29, her husband praises her and he says, You know, there's a lot of women out there who are pretty great. You are on a whole different level, baby. <laughs> it's the new Aaron Gray paraphrase. What an amazing picture. Okay. <laughs> look at this amazing picture and there's a lot to learn there's a lot to glean but I would be willing to venture a guess that somebody here today as I'm reading through this or maybe more than just somebody you're feeling the weight of this idealism this is, this is like a standard like the bar is so high relationships are great hard work, business, industry, teaching, serving the poor, making sheets for your beds for crying out loud. This is really an idealistic sort of portrait. Here's, here's the problem when we come to an ideal. When we, when we come across something be it the idealistic picture on Pinterest or an idealistic picture like this from Proverbs 31, our hearts generally go in one of two directions. Our hearts either go to pride or our hearts go to despair. We look at this idealistic thing and we think to ourselves, yeah, you know what? I'm actually keeping up pretty good. I've got throw pillows on my couch, my makeup's on point today, we have a family photo where all the kids are smiling and looking at the camera, I'm doing pretty good. Or maybe more often, we flip over into despair. Barely could make myself a bowl of cereal this morning before somebody came and interrupted and I spilled that and the bathroom hasn't been cleaned and... Years and we're just you know money's tight and I don't have a side business and my husband hasn't risen up and praised me in a good while and what's wrong with him and sitting there looking at like your life and it's like oh I'm I'm terrible I must be terrible. Because of that, and you, you guys are relating to what I'm saying here, because of that, sometimes we might not want to even look upon something that is ideal or something that is perfect, which is a real tragedy. You know why? Because if we don't look at the ideal, we miss out on looking at Jesus Christ, who is the perfect son of God. And this passage tells us, look at look at verse 30 again. Charm is deceitful, and, and, and Beauty is, is fleeting, right? You could be charming and nice, but somebody can fake that. And you might be beautiful, but you know, age and time catch up with all of us. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You heard me say it, you heard my friend Dimitri say it when he came and preached, that the fear of the Lord is at the very crux, at the very center of what the book of Proverbs calls wisdom. To place one's trust in the Lord, to seek one's identity from the Lord, to seek one's well-being from the Lord. Not from your accomplishments, not from your appearance, not from anyone else, not any other human relationship, but to know that the Lord himself looks upon you with love and with grace and with favor. And friends, we as followers of Jesus would say there is no greater way to fear the Lord than by placing our trust in Jesus. Tim Keller, a pastor and author has famously said this. He says, only Christianity destroys both pride and despair. Christianity first shows you a law that has to be totally fulfilled, destroying your pride. And then Christianity shows you a savior who has totally fulfilled it, getting rid of your despair. See, friends, Jesus, think about this. Jesus is the only one that is. his life is marked by all these things that we talked about. Jesus had the teaching of kindness on his tongue. Jesus gave his life for the poor. Jesus was strong enough to calm the wind and the waves. Jesus was strong enough to not call down lightning from heaven when his captors were nailing him to a Roman cross and yet he was vulnerable enough to minister grace to the woman at the well. Jesus only used his words to build others up. Jesus was never lazy or idle. Jesus worked day and night. Jesus went to the cross dying in our place for our sins, a perfect ideal sacrifice. The the New Testament writers say that he's like a lamb without blemish and without spot. He is the ideal sacrifice. The best lamb that you could ever sacrifice could never really take away sin. But guess what? The blood of Jesus Christ can. And on the third day, he rose from the grave proving that he has all strength and he has all authority and he has all power and he has the power to forgive us where we fall so very, very short of the ideal. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says in verse 14, it says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, I love this verse because it says one one single offering, one time, one sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, he has made us, what's the word? Perfect. On your own. Anybody walk in here today thinking, I'm perfect. Just nailed it. Everything from like good hair day to also, yeah, moral perfection. Anybody? Nobody. But when we are in Christ, when we have trusted in Christ, it says like our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when God looks upon us, he views us as though we were as ideal as the Proverbs 31 woman, as though we were as perfect as Jesus Christ himself. And then the author of Hebrews is a realist and says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Anyone here today, a work in progress? Yes and amen. It's verses like this, which is why one of our values as a church is progress, not perfection. On my own, I'm a hopeless mess. You know, the the, the area where we live here, the North Seattle suburbs, are kind of built to just try to make everything look real good. Keep your lawn mowed, keep your fence painted, drive your car into the garage, keep everything kind of you know, managed and looking good. But friends, if we're honest, every single one of us have so many cracks in our soul. We need so much daily grace. This is why the gospel is the best news ever. It says that God looks upon us as though we were as perfect as Christ Jesus, and yet from the inside out, he's working on us to change us, to make what is, real, what is reality in his heart and mind, he's working to make it more of a reality in our lives. That's the good news of the gospel. So when you read a section of scripture like Proverbs 31, you can think along with me, I'm finally at my big idea. Finally, I'm finally here, okay? Here's the big idea Only Jesus is the ideal. The rest of us are growing and making progress as we increasingly rely upon his grace. Only Jesus is perfect. Don't, please don't come to church and try to act perfect. Come with your weakness, come with your brokenness, come with your mess and say, Lord Jesus, I need you, I need your word, I need your spirit, I need your people. A couple quick thoughts to close As you consider something like Proverbs 31 and these different areas, I want you to be grateful for your strengths. I I, I do not want to encourage anyone in false humility here today. You look through this list, none of us are perfect, none of us are ideal, but maybe actually some of these things you are kind of good at. So be grateful for that. Be grateful to God ultimately, but maybe you need to call somebody. Maybe you need to call your mom who taught you how to do such and such. Maybe you had a pastor who invested in you. You can call them up and say, hey, thank you so much for teaching me the word of God because now I'm teaching it to other people. and That's great. No false modesty here, please. That's not honoring to God. Be grateful for your strengths. Not boastful, grateful. Number two, work on your weaknesses. We all have them. Don't just... Um, don't just make your peace with it. Well, you know, I'm just really not very good at giving to the poor, so I don't give to the poor. Hold Hold on a second, okay? So maybe you're not by nature a very generous person, but the book of Galatians tells us to walk in step with the Spirit. What that means is like, take steps, even if they're faltering little baby steps, to go along with the flow of what God is wanting to do in your life, Maybe it's something you're never gonna be like, you know, there are those people who just have gifts of generosity and they're really good at giving to the poor. And the rest of us, man, we just need to take baby steps and walk with the Spirit. And Number three, most importantly, keep your eyes focused on the perfection of Jesus. What I'm really trying to say is delete your Instagram account. (laughs) That's the real big idea. All week long, you're going to be bombarded with images. Social media, magazines in the grocery store, TV commercials of perfection, idealism, perfection. If you buy these pills, you can have nine pack abs. And if you follow this thing, your kids are going to never have problems in school or whatever. Like, just look upon Jesus, his perfection. He is the ideal. Every human culture gets it right in some ways and wrong in some other ways. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. And in a moment, we're gonna have opportunity to do that as we go into a celebration of the Lord's table and as we sing together. Will you pray with me? God, I ask and I pray that you would help us right now to fix our eyes upon the perfection of Christ Jesus. As we come to the table right now, we come uh, needy beggars, all of us. There's not one of us that has lived up to your moral perfection. There's not one of us that perfectly displays your glory and your beauty. Lord God, we come just so full of need, but we come so full of thankfulness that you have loved us and you have given yourself for us. We thank you that right now, Lord Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of the Most High, living all day long to make intercession for us. Early in the morning and late at night, you're still working on our behalf to give us grace. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go to the Lord's table, we have these, we have these um, less than ideal elements for communion. Sometimes we poke fun at them. You know, we've got them set up out there. This is not our building. The school district said, no, please don't have wine that can spill. And actually we can't because it's a school and you can't have alcohol and things like that. And so we've got these nifty little prepackaged things. And can I just be honest, these are like the lamest things ever. <laughs> Sam, I'm going to go over to this side of the room because... Here's the thing though, guys. In communion, the power is not in the bread or the cup. I mean, even as we look at these meager elements today, even as we eat of this meager bread and drink of this meager cup, we are reminded of just how weak and fragile we are and just how good and glorious his grace is. Amen? So we're gonna do what the apostle Paul says. We're gonna, like Jesus, take the bread and understand that it's his body broken for us. And we're going to take the cup and we're going to remember that it's his blood that was poured out for us. And and I love this word proclaim, proclaiming the Lord's death. In verse 26, that as we eat and as we drink, we're actually speaking out a picture of the gospel. We're going to do that again this afternoon when we baptize some folks. And we've got six or seven people signed up to get baptized. It's going to be glorious. It's a picture of the gospel. In verse 27, the apostle Paul says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner We'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So friends, I want you to take a moment now as the band begins to lead us in song and as we welcome our younger students class in to join us. I want to invite you just to take a few minutes to pray and, and search your heart and ask the Lord to show you. Man, is there anywhere where you've given place to a, an ungodly type of pride or idealism? Is there somewhere where you're despairing and just need to re- receive of his grace? Take a few moments now in silent prayer before the Lord and then we'll stand and sing together in just a moment.